Welcome to On Your Terms with Erin King, a show about living a life you truly love. Here's Erin. When it comes to turning the ordinary into extraordinary, are you able to truly, really bet on yourself? If you're not sure, good news, because today's speaker is the author of Bet on Yourself, Anne Hyatt. Anne is a Silicon Valley veteran with 15 years of experience as the executive business partner for the one and only Jeff Bezos. Yeah, she was there back in the day before he was the big famous space cowboy of Amazon, helping him to scale and grow the world's largest online company. She also was the right-hand gal for Eric Schmidt, who is the CEO and executive chairman of Google. She worked with Marissa Meyer and was really on the ground floor of big tech 20 years ago when all of these tech legends were just figuring things out one day at a time. Growing up in Seattle during the original dot-com boom, surrounded by companies like Microsoft, Amazon, and Starbucks, being in that environment for Anne was a masterclass in innovation, and it truly changed the course of her life. Anne now consults with executives and companies across the globe to reverse engineer their moonshot goals and get real results. She is a sought-after international speaker, angel investor, and sits on several boards in the UK. And she recently relocated from Silicon Valley to Europe. How exciting is that? She brings with her a unique perspective of what it takes to succeed in business today and is the author of Bet on yourself. Get ready because there are all kinds of nuggets in this conversation with Anne. We talk about battling imposter syndrome, setting true success goals, overcoming adversity, reinvention, moonshot dreams. All the goods are in here and Anne brings the heat. So without further ado, Anne Hyatt. Erin King here. And today my guest is Anne Hyatt, who is joining us from España all the way over the ocean, and she is battling a little bit of the COVID, but she's showing up bravely and badassly, and thank you so much. I am very excited about it. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. I had so much fun reading your book and just learning all about your incredible journey. The opening line of your book, by the way, is probably one of my top five favorite opening lines of any book. One of my favorite lines is from Ariana Huffington, where she opens her book by saying, I woke up in a pool of my own blood. Like, I remember that. Mine had the word tampon in it. And yours said, in 2013, I almost killed Jeff Bezos. Truth. Best opening line of a book. Tell us what happened. How did you almost kill the founder of Amazon? Yeah. So my very first job after graduating from undergrad was working directly for Jeff Bezos during the foundational years of Amazon. So I started working there in 2002. Just a few months later in 2003, I got my first big assignment and I literally almost killed not only Jeff Bezos, but the entire company through that mistake. Because at that time, if you can imagine it, Amazon was not yet profitable. So had Jeff gone down, all of the stock value, all of the investments that had been made in Amazon would have disappeared with it. Mini version of that story was Jeff was visiting some properties in Texas and the only way for him to visit the mall in the time frame he'd given me was to hire a helicopter. I was 20 years old, didn't have a helicopter in my Rolodex, had absolutely no idea how one should go about hiring a helicopter, but I hired one and it did crash with him inside. And there was a good about five hour period where I literally thought he was dead. And um, thankfully, obviously, that was not the end to that story or my career. We both came out the other side stronger and wiser for it. Oh, my God. What a story. That is just, I can't even imagine. Obviously, it turned out okay. Thank goodness. We can talk about it in this sort of a light manner. But there is nothing more scary than thinking you just killed your boss, particularly when that boss is 
the boss of all bosses. Yeah. Back then he was like nerd 1.0 version of Jeff. He wasn't this space cowboy that he is today. But still, he had been Time Magazine's Man of the Year in 1999. He was definitely a local celebrity. He was a major part of Seattle economy, which is my hometown. So yeah, it would have been a really big deal still to kill him. Oh my God. I love it. Your book, Bet on Yourself, is all about recognizing, owning, and implementing ROI, recognize, own, and implement your breakthrough opportunities. And I just want to start actually at the end of your book. I want to start, I think it was chapter eight or chapter nine. I want to invert it instead of going chronologically. Yeah. I want to start with the story that had me just leaning forward and wanting to know every juicy detail. Let's talk reinvention. Let's talk Spain. Let's talk the vacation that changed your life. Tell us that story and then we'll go into some of the, the media strategy stuff. <laughs> okay. Take a vacation in Spain at your own risk. I was at this point very much in a midlife crisis mode of my career. I had worked for 15 years for some of the most innovative companies and executives in the world. I loved every second of it. I had been speaking at a conference in Portugal and a British friend of mine, she owned an apartment in Javi, literally two blocks from where I'm recording this now. And she said, friend, you need a vacation more than anyone I know. My apartment's open. I know you have a week between Portugal and when you need to be in the Paris office. Please go and relax. And the first night I was here, I met my husband at a street festival and that kind of changed the course of everything. It wasn't immediately that I packed all my bags, but eventually within a couple of years, it was kind of in my plan to fully reinvent myself. So I literally sold, donated every single possession I had that didn't fit into two suitcases and three duffel bags. I moved to the other side of the world and I've completely reinvented myself, stripping it down to the foundations, fully passion aligned with how I want to show up in the world and redesigning what my contribution is, what my living legacy is going to be. But I did that not knowing that the global pandemic was coming just shortly thereafter. So it's been a bigger challenge than I originally designed for myself, but the best thing. That is like out of a rom-com. Who would play you in a rom-com? Let's just talk about Ooh. that. <laughs> oh, Reese Witherspoon, she's any yeah. like I am. <laughs> I love it. We have the same birthday. Not a big deal, but we're basically the same person. Okay. No, that's such a great story. I mean, I love it so much because I think all of us had dreamed, whether it was after a bad breakup or after a failed venture or just out of just the boredom of getting stuck in some kind of a cycle of our own design or not, we've all dreamed of meeting a handsome stranger on vacation and becoming an expat in somewhere glamorous like Valencia, Spain. So I just <laughs> applaud you for actually being our real life superhero. But tell us, because we, we all talk about this, where it's quit your job, move to Europe, do the mm -hmm. thing, go on the vacay. But tell us about the less glamorous sides of that. If we peel back the layers, you alluded to it earlier with the pandemic. What were some of those challenges for you? Were there moments when you really doubted yourself? Did you freak out and almost move back? Were there moments where you really did have to bet on yourself to keep walking this fairy tale by design? It has been, I know it does sound very glamorous and I cannot complain. Like the Mediterranean is right there. I see it every morning on my morning runs. The moment I shut my laptop at night, you instantly feel on vacation. But being an expat, there are major frustrations. Setting up and incorporating a company in a foreign country where you're not yet fluent in the language or a foreign bank account. Literally today, I had to apologize to one of my new vendors who are producing my podcast because I'm late on paying my invoice because my Spanish bank just hasn't bothered to send it yet. There's a lot of things that I just don't know how to do here. How There's a different sense of urgency. In fact, I share a little factoid in the book about how the pace of foot traffic in the city is directly correlated to the number of patents filed there. 
it is a very different foot traffic space. So really, it's a beautiful blessing and a curse because coming straight from Silicon Valley to small town, Mediterranean, coastal Spain forces me into that beautiful lifestyle of appreciating every moment. You would never take a coffee on the go. You sit down, you chat with friends, you chat with the owners, you make relationships with every shop owner that you pass on your walking to work. So I love that it's forced the Silicon Valley girl out of that breakneck pace that I got so accustomed to. But it also is frustrating. I call it culture whiplash because in my day, now I consult global CEOs literally all over the world across five different continents. And when I spend my day talking to those CEOs at a million miles an hour, and then I open my office door and enter that Spanish street, I sometimes slam into the back of the person in front of me because it's just a very different environment. So it is a blessing and a curse. I, it's great to be married to a Spaniard who can help interpret that for me and ease me through it. But I cannot tell you how many like humiliating moments I've had learning this is my sixth foreign language and really embarrassing myself when I'm trying to be professional and I feel like I know what I'm doing. I can't complain. There are definitely hard times. And I miss my family a lot, especially in these weird pandemic times. And so that is hard. Not too shabby. Tell us about before you went to Spain. So you were in Silicon Valley. You worked for Amazon. You worked for Google. You worked for Marissa Meyer and Eric Schmidt and Jeff Bezos and all of these basically like the superheroes of the big tech world. These larger than life legends who, by the way, it's worth noting, all had amazing things to say about about you. Fantastic compliments. And I'm going to go into that in a second. But tell me about the moments where are you when you think back to who you were when you were in flow, like in those Silicon Valley positions and reporting to these monster personalities, that woman, that Anne versus this Anne now, are you a totally different person? Or do you feel that you're the same person who's just been a chameleon in the environment that you're in? Because I can't think of two totally different cultures than Silicon Valley versus Mediterranean Spain. So yeah. So tell us about that. I guess for a lot of people that are listening, they probably wonder, gosh, do I need to move to find that slower pace of life? So how much transferred of Anne and, and how has that impacted you? I love that you use the word chameleon. I think that is the right interpretation of the evolution of me. I do feel like I've stayed authentic and consistent, even in my infancy. Look, working directly for Jeff Bezos as your first job at 20 years old, straight out of school is, geez, that's in. Hence, in fact, people always ask me to describe what it's like working for him. And I use the word relentless. In fact, this is a little Easter egg for your listeners. If you go to relentless.com, it will redirect you to Amazon because it back in the infancy, the birth of the internet, he wanted that to be a core value of how we got things done there. So that in a nutshell is what that experience was like. Amazing mentor. Like I don't, I have to add an asterisk here. I don't want everything that follows here to sound like hero worship. I know their strengths as well as their many weaknesses, but I learned so much. It was an incredible business school. But I was very junior and I quickly realized I had no idea what I was doing. But the great thing about starting in tech in the early 2000s was that nobody had any idea what they were doing. So even Jeff, as the CEO and founder, was doing things every day he had never done before. And watching all the SVPs who work for him also experimenting and trying things gave me permission to do the same. While my nature is very timid and perfectionist by nature and all the negative connotations and where I hold myself back because I don't want to make a mistake or make a foul of myself, having that culture around me empowered me to 
raise my hand for some things that I should have been really terrified to do because they were far outside my job description, my experience level, my seniority. Then that carried with me at Google where, yes, I worked first for Marissa Meyer right before she went on to become CEO of Yahoo. And then for nine and a half of the 12 years, I was at Google for Eric Schmidt as CEO and then executive chairman. I feel like that same little Anne from Seattle still remains inside of me today. But I have evolved her in a way that she shows up with more confidence. And even when I have no idea what I'm doing, look, I founded this company just three years ago. I took on global consulting clients who are doing things that I have no idea how to do. They're in fintech and health tech and ed tech and all these expertise I don't have. But I often have to remind myself, I'm just there to ask the right questions and I can trust myself to figure it out. So that has really helped me keep this authentic thread, but challenge myself and up-leveling my skills and building a new skill set consistently. I want to unpack something that you said earlier, which is that you had a little bit of a people-pleasing perfectionist streak Mm -hmm. for our listeners that find themselves nodding their head. How did you learn to release some of those perfectionist tendencies, especially with a relentless energy around you, surrounding you in early days. So you're a female working for powerhouses in the early days of tech with a relentless mission strategy and a perfectionist tendency. You grew up in a military house. So I there was a lot of you where you were like just always probably critical and harden yourself and the inner Regina George and all those mm-hmm. imposter syndrome components. It's like a perfect storm. So how did you learn to start betting on yourself? Was there a moment or a habit or how did you shift that behavior from something that was maybe not as positive as you would have liked it to be to something that really ultimately served you into who you are now? I really have to credit this awakening to the exceptional CEO mentors that I had. I really watched them do this. And I think both of them are a great example of humble leadership. That's maybe not the first word you think of when you see like Jeff Bezos and Eric Schmidt now, but that truly is how they lead their teams. In fact, I describe Jeff accurately as relentless as a boss. The average tenure of his direct reports is 19. How in 19 years in a relentless environment do people stay and show up and up level every day? And I think it does come back to what you're talking about is he created this culture where you are allowed to make mistakes. You're allowed to ask seemingly dumb questions. You're allowed to reinvent yourself consistently. In fact, it's demanded. So there was one really important moment I had with both Jeff and with Eric. With Jeff, I watched him create a position right around the same time I was hired called The Shadow. The Shadow was a person whose full-time job was to be at Jeff's side at all times, to be copied on every email, to be in every meeting, on every flight, to literally be at his side at all times, hence the name Shadow. It's now called Technical Director, but the original title is Shadow for that reason. And then once they were up to speed and had that full context that only Jeff had, because all his other SVPs were heads down on their deliverables, The Shadow's major responsibility was to challenge all of Jeff's ideas, poke holes in all his favorite ideas, see around blind corners, anticipate needs, or ask the questions that no one had yet asked. And that was a moment of click for me, sitting there as the junior most person at the entire company, like junior assistant number three on this team. And I thought, if the shadow can do this, I have access to the same things. I read every email. I hear every phone call. I hear, I read all the briefing documents for all his meetings. Why don't I just shift my mindset into a learning mindset and really lean into this? And I, again, I come straight from school. I decided to treat it like school. And so that allowed me to learn line upon line and make each day feel a little bit more successful. Then when I was working for Eric, I had, and this was probably 10 years later, I had this beautiful moment where he was speaking on stage at a conference in Paris called Vivitech. He was the speaker immediately before newly elected President Macron. 
And he was nervous when he was going onto stage, which was very unusual. He's on global stages every single day, live TV, it's no big deal. But this day he was a little nervous. It was a brand new speech about artificial intelligence. And he gave a great speech and he came off stage and I had my little notebook of feedback for him because I knew he'd asked me how it went. And he came off stage and he asked me so sincerely, was that okay? And I just put my notebook down. I was like, you're Eric Schmidt. Of course that was okay. And he said, sometimes I still have to remind myself that I'm not little Eric from Virginia anymore. And that is now, as a founder myself, my mantra. This helps me reframe imposter syndrome in a really important way. Imposter syndrome sounds like a permanent diagnosis, which is how I saw myself early in my career. But he reframed it as what um, social scientists call an imposter moment. It was just an acknowledgement of how far you've come. It doesn't mean you don't belong on that stage. It doesn't mean you don't deserve that seat at the table. It means I am no longer little Anne from Seattle anymore and look how far I've come. And that is something I come back to over and over again. And I learned that watching my CEOs, some of the most powerful and intelligent people in the world, model that attitude of a learn it all rather than a know it all. And it gave me mm. permission to do this. What a great story. I love the distinction between learn it all versus know it all. That is just like the world's most brilliant thinkers are the most curious, the lifelong learners, the students mm -hmm. of life. I love that distinction. And, and I like the redefining of imposter moments versus imposter syndrome too. I, I There's one phrase I heard about this that just stuck with me. And it said something like, the only people who never have even a moment of imposter syndrome are actually the imposters. I love that. I remember hearing that and I was like, gosh, isn't that the truth? And and I, I had a similar moment with a, a girlfriend of mine who is former Clinton White House. She's run like 800,000 marathons. She has all these children. She's <laughs> 55 years old, guns yeah. of steel. She's just this like really impressive gal. And she wrote this great book called Limitless. Her name's Laura Gassner Odding. She's fabulous. And one day we were talking about keynote speaking and she just said, gosh, I just wish sometimes I could get up there and just rant, just speak from my heart, just not have a plan, not be perfectly polished, not have it all mapped out. And I was like, why don't you do that? Gary Vee's this, he's like a very audacious, brash, speak from the heart, like authenticity to the max kind of fella. And I was like, well, Gary Vee rants all the time on stage. And her immediate knee-jerk reaction was like, well, I'm no Gary Vee. And I looked at her and I'm like, okay, you literally have the exact same level of, of qualifications, of pedigree, of enoughness. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, she wrote a book called Limitless. She's literally been on every show you can imagine. And even she has those Eric Schmidt moments of, am I good enough? Am I ready enough? And so weirdly thinking about those moments, similar to your story with Eric, allows us to authorize ourselves. That when we do have those moments of stutter step to realize that it just means that we're probably on the right track. It means we're not a narcissistic psychopath who thinks we belong <laughs> everywhere. And that even the world's biggest heroes that we admire and respect so deeply have those exact same experiences. So I find it very liberating to know that it's a common shared moment or condition or syndrome, whatever you want to mm -hmm. frame it. I love that story. That's so validating to me that, yes, I constantly have to remind myself this is what success feels like. Having these moments of like terror of, oh gosh, who thought it was a good idea for me to be in this chair or to be on this stage or write this book? I have those moments, but then yeah, it's just a reminder of how far you've come. Let's talk about that. So I love how you said, so what success feels like. You have so many accomplishments throughout your career from a corporate standpoint and launching this new business at the very beginning of a pandemic, which 
kudos to you. Hard enough to be an entrepreneur, let alone the timing that you launched your business. Yeah. I applaud you for that bravery. So in 2021, and I'll just share with you. So I, I made the most money I've ever made from my business in 2021. And it was the worst year of my life. My dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. My mom got melanoma. Eight-month-old puppy was hit by a car in front of me. Died in my arms. Worst experience oh. in my life. My best friend moved away after being one block away for 10 years. And to top it off, my husband lost two-thirds of his network in the stock market. So I'm I'm not telling you this list to be like, poor me, because we all have our bullet list of what, what went down in the pandemic. My point of the story is that it was the absolute worst year emotionally, but from a, an achievement standpoint, like I, I accomplished every to-do. I just knocked them all out. And at the end of the year, I remember thinking to myself, gosh, I didn't really feel any joy from accomplishing these things. I don't feel successful. And it was like this lose moment because I bet on myself to use your phrase from your book. And yet I felt so unsuccessful. And mm -hmm. so in 2022, I reframed my to-do list to be more of a to-feel list. So I, I reframed my goals in terms of the vibe and the emotion that I wanted to attach with it. And four weeks later, my agency, after three years of back and forth and stop and start, was finally acquired. And that was one of the things I put out there as a feeling where I'd just been like a to-do for three years and nothing ever happened. So very long. I want to talk about defining success mm -hmm. and what we do if we get to the, the top of the mountain and the view isn't what we thought it was going to be or doesn't feel like we thought it was going to be and what you found to be helpful in defining what success looks like for you and making sure it feels successful. Okay. We could be here for hours. Very passionate about this topic. I have spent I think the pandemic led a lot of us to asking ourselves similar questions. Some of us have come out the other side. I love the reframing that you've got. Some of us haven't yet. So I'm yeah. about to speak at South by Southwest about exactly this. So sneak peek, <laughs> I've become obsessed with this. So the original title of my book was not Bet on Yourself. The original title was Say Your Name. And mm -hmm. Say Your Name was important to me because for 15 years, I worked for some of the most powerful, most famous, wealthiest people in the entire world. And I said their name a billion times more than my own. I was always Anne from Eric's and from Google and from whatever. I wasn't just me. And so I think in this pandemic, when I took this leap to become an entrepreneur myself and hang my name on that door for the first time, it was the two emotions I felt were terror and euphoria. It's my favorite line. There's a great book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And uh, that's my favorite line. There's only two emotions as an entrepreneur is terror and euphoria. But what I've realized, I've made a lot of mistakes in this journey. First was I knew I needed to be passion aligned because that's what prevented me from burning out from a very demanding career in Silicon Valley. I worked 15 hour days, six, probably seven days a week, most of the time for 15 years. The reason you don't burn out doing that is because I was very passion aligned. What we were trying to accomplish was really important to me. I felt like it was important to the world. I felt like it was serving the cause. So I knew that was an important core center to have in my next career. But I quickly realized like you did, that even if I was fully passionate, I could still burn myself out. Mm -hmm. There's constant need. There's constant requests. I have the wonderful problem of having like very long waiting list to my consulting, to speaking, to there's more opportunities than I could say yes to. And so I felt guilty for not being able to say yes to everything. So that meant I had to hone it down even more. So what I've realized, and this is the core, you're getting a sneak peek into the, the secret surprise ending of my South by Talk. There's an economic principle called Pareto's principle or the 80-20 rule. The 80-20 rule says that 80% of your results come from 20% of your efforts. So I did this reshuffling during the pandemic thinking I was a genius where I was like, I did all this evaluation. I looked at my time and my finances and my influence and I honed in. I, I defined what that 20% was that was giving me 80% of my results. And so I shifted everything 
to doing that. And I freaking burned myself out <laughs> into the opposite of what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Because then I was trying to go against the economics of this principle. You need 80% fueling your 20% efforts. So I shifted everything instead of trying to stay in that zone of genius. I realized that 80% of my time actually needs to be filling myself back up. So much of what we do is give. So instead of trying to fill 80% of my day with that zone of genius 20% that gives me all the results, what I had to do was protect 80% of my time for taking care of myself physically, mentally, spiritually, connecting with people. This goes back to your core principle. This is a universal truth, it seems, is how do I want to feel at the end of the day? What is my living legacy today? None of us know when our last day will be. I think we've all been reminded of our mortality over the last couple of years. And for me, I really want to live in that zone where I am fueling myself to be able to give and show up in the way I want to that day. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, a, I'm an ongoing experiment. But that shift mentally of the 80% of taking care of myself allows me to show up for that 20% that gives me all the results has given me that breath of fresh air that I really needed. I love that so much, Anne. And I just have to say, I think that having that type of a breakthrough, first of all, people that are listening that are maybe still at the part where, like me, they aren't feeling successful or you're like, why isn't this working? There's only one way through the fire and it's through the fire. There's no shortcut. There's no skipping. There's no five packs. There's no secret. Like every one of our failure wounds that have healed into our success scars is the only way to uncover and to surface what that 80-20 strategy for you and your personal objectives can look like. So I love that you uncovered it and that you earned that journey. It wasn't easy, but you did. And now you're in flow and you're speaking at South by Southwest. And I just think that's so important. If you find yourself feeling like, when am I going to get through it? Who will I be on the other side? No one can tell you. You're the only one that can discover it. And that, that can be lonely to think about. But at the same token, when you hear everyone have that story that resonates so similarly, you realize that everyone who's doing great things and who's challenging themselves to bet on themselves, this is the only way to figure it out. So so stick with it and sit with the challenge until you give yourself that space to have the breakthrough. In your book, you talk a lot about impact, which I love. You have a whole chapter dedicated to the question that we all ask ourselves, I think, no matter where we are in our entrepreneurial or corporate journey, which is what I'm doing, does it matter? And if it matters, What's the actual impact? And so moving away from the feelings and more into the facts. Am I moving the needle? Am I changing the world? Am I being that example for my team or my kids or my friends? Like you talk about uncovering ways to make impact and even to level those up to making bigger impact. So for someone who's listening, who is struggling with that, maybe a sense of purpose or a sense of how do we measure the impact of our actions? Where do they start with that? What's a good way to start figuring that out and untangling that necklace? This question is so important. And I think this is at the heart of this great resignation that has been happening and maybe this refocusing in our passion and our missions and what we want our living legacy to be. So for me, look, over my career, I had to level myself up proactively. That never once happened reactively. No one, no boss of mine, as spectacular as they were, no boss of mine came to me and said, and I've seen this untapped talent of yours and I've been thinking about how to apply it or, and I'd really like, that's just, that's my responsibility. No one else is ever going to do that for you. So when I look back and think about how did I up-level myself, it was not this clear at the time, but looking back, I can see a pattern of three things. I was always very clear with myself, these three categories of things. And when one or two, or definitely when two of them are out of balance, it was time to move on. The first is I consistently ask myself, what do I want to learn in this next 
phase of my career. When you clarify that, and that sounds like a very simple question, but if you sit down right now, you're going to get into the weeds. So what do I want to learn in this next phase of my career? So that means what expertise do I want to be known for? What stages do I want to stand on? What types of teams do I want to learn to lead? What tricky situations do I want to know how to manage? And that brings us to important element number two, which is you have to see that. You need to learn it from the best. So the second thing I look for in career empowerment, when you're looking for this center compass of your own is surround yourself with the highest quality people that you can. So the best leader that you can, don't only surround yourself with people that you like, but that you want to become. There's that saying that we become the average of the five people we spend most of our time with. So let's be really choosy. So whether your manager right now is deserving of that or not, if they're not, seek that out in your community. Volunteer and find a really amazing community organizer that is a type of leader you want to be or work on a cross-functional project at work. And be very mindful of your social media. Anyone in your feed who makes you feel less than or inferior, get rid of it immediately today. And only have those people who up-level you and make you think, I can do it. I've got it. You're that dose of inspiration. And then we have a phrase over here, and we call it bless and block. Yes. Oh, I'm going to steal it. I'm writing that on my wall immediately. I love that. And that brings you to the third category. So once you've really done this assessment, what do I want to learn? Who's going to help me get there? The third is disruption. And I don't just mean working in like artificial intelligence or a disruptive tech industry. Are you consistently disruptive? disrupting yourself by up-leveling your skills, getting additional training, taking on projects that you don't yet know how to do or working on something outside the traditional confines of your job description. I've found that if you proactively disrupt yourself, that is the best way to future-proof your career because you're going to be one step ahead of what your manager, your company has asked of you, and you're going to be able to show up in a way that no one else can. So that for me is a great first place to look at when trying to define your own compass. I also want to acknowledge right now that even though I learned these lessons multiple times across my 15-year career in Silicon Valley, the moment I became an entrepreneur myself, I felt rudderless. I like I had no idea where I was going. Yeah. And so I spent six months, and this is pre-pandemic, the first six months of the nine months I was a founder before the pandemic hit, trying to decipher this for myself. So I've actually put together a, a free download. It's on my website, betonyourselfbook.com. You can download it right now. It's a 14-page guide. I'm talking like I'm giving you all the details, all the questions, all the thought exercises to walk you through this because I've found that really you need your own individual mission statement, value statement. That's how you know how to discover passion alignment. I know I'm leaning in. I love the whole thing. I cannot wait to download it. And I love that you talk about your personal mission statement. I'm sure that's covered in the PDF. But I will say that without that, I feel like you do feel rudderless. And for a lot of us that are coaches, we run teams, we have leadership in the online or the offline space. We can feel rudderless because it can be easier to be a coach than a player sometimes. Yeah. I ran a social media agency for 15 years, everyone else's marketing problems, I could see so clearly the path. And then the minute it's anything that has to do with my personal brand, and I'm a hot mess intern that like doesn't even know where to turn. <laughs> so hard to do it to take your own medicine. I just want to challenge everyone if, if they are listening to this and you feel like, God, why can't I do it for everyone else and not myself? like the cobbler's son always has the worst shoes. Let's just make peace with it and do our best. But I love that download idea. And I think it's super important to get your own mission statement over here at our company. We have three things. And it's nothing fancy. It's not a beautiful sign, although I probably should just get something like from Etsy or Pinterest, but it's just three post-it notes that are very dirty and curled up and disgusting. <laughs> but we just basically say in this order, which is like help people, 
have fun and make money. And when those big decisions come across our desk, what are we saying yes to? What are we saying no to? Who are we partnering with? What are we bringing on? We literally just go through and we ask ourselves, are we helping people? Are we having fun? Are we making money? And we try to shoot for three, but if it's at least two of the three, mm-hmm. you're like, okay, let's green light it. But sometimes you come across opportunities where it's just making money. Yeah. Or it's just having fun. But okay, just helping people is great, but that's also not a scalable business sometimes. We <laughs> try to get at least two. And it saved us because I'm not a great boundary drawler naturally. So I really have mm-hmm. to work on it with real intentionality and roll up the sleeves type of mindset around a boundary drawing. So that personal mission statement for us has helped me figure out where to put the lines. So I just, I love that you had this exercise and I can't wait to dive into it. I am so glad that is the perfect articulation of the end goal because lots of places, lots of companies have mission statements, but it doesn't move the needle forward. It's something in their lobby that nobody ever talks about. But I love that this is such a worn series of post notes because you're constantly referring to it. And that not only helps you to say yes to, but it helps you know what to say no to. I've heard you share you had a very lucrative client that just wasn't checking the other two boxes and you had to get very brave and let that go. And it opened up space for things that were fulfilling that fuller mission. And I like that it's an evolution that you've shared that this is something that you consistently revisit. You have to recenter yourself on. That was definitely true for me. It took me a long time to write my mission statement. But at pre-pandemic, my mission statement was to empower underrepresented entrepreneurs through actual education and mentorship. And I was really happy with that end result. It helped me show up in a lot of places. But then in the pandemic, I realized I needed to add a word. I added what is now the first word of my mission statement, which is to discover and empower underrepresented entrepreneurs. And I added discover because I realized there's so many people out there who don't yet self-identify as an entrepreneur. They don't yet realize that being an entrepreneur, like you don't have to go out there and like found in your garage and go after $100 million of VC funding. That's only one type of entrepreneur. But you can very much be an entrepreneur working in a large corporation or working in a small company. What that really means is just you're putting yourself in the driver's seat and you know exactly what you want in exchange for your hard work. And that is one of my major missions now and has added that layer of filter that I needed to really show up where I think I can have the most impact. Mm -hmm. The work in progress. Oh, I love that so much. I love the tweak and how important like words matter. That one click of the lens allows you to see your why through your activity, which is so, that's the core of it. I'm going to put all (laughs) the links to your podcast, your book, Bet on Yourself, which is fantastic. Check out all of Anne's content, her downloadable, her PDF her stories. I love you as a guest because typically my guests are either diehard corporate or diehard entrepreneur. So I love because I was corporate and then evolved into entrepreneur as well. So I love someone that has obviously different journeys, but I love that you can see both sides of the coin because it offers such rich value to everyone that is looking for answers, whether they're an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, aspiring, wherever they are in their journey. Anne's book has something to help you to really grab that gear and focus on the ROI, which was again, recognize, own and implement career changing strategies. Yeah. Recognize, own and implement. I love it. And you are just a delight. Thank you so much for joining us from España. Really appreciate you. And I hope to see you live here in the States very soon. Thanks. It's really fun. Thank you so much for investing your heart, your mind, of course, your time with me here today. And it is my deepest hope that you have gleaned at least a few new nuggets on how to better live a life that you love on your terms. You can subscribe to see all of my weekly episodes. And if you have time, you can send a screenshot of your review of the podcast 
to onyourterms at erinking.com and you'll be sent a free access pass to my Digital Persuasion Masterclass, where you'll learn how to attract attention, increase your influence, and sell smarter from behind the screen. I hope that you'll join me next week for another episode of On Your Terms. And until then, let's connect on Instagram at mrs.aaron.king. Till next time, friends.